You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Nick Desai, founder and CEO of Hey Renee. And this episode, we'll talk about how Nick managed to start five venture-backed companies, how many of those were successful, how many of those did he try to bootstrap, and how many was his take on bootstrapping versus raising money from institutional investors such as venture capitalists. So Nick, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Hey Renee. Uh, Thanks, Constantine, and uh, thanks for having me on the program. As you mentioned, I'm Nick Desai. I'm a And my background is I'm a first-generation immigrant. I was born in Mumbai, India, Um, but I'm older than most entrepreneurs these days. I'm 51, and I went to my undergrad and grad school, both in electrical engineering, did grad school at UCLA in electrical engineering, and other than an internship at Rockwell Science Center, um, I am been a serial entrepreneur. I'm a five-time venture-funded technology entrepreneur from scratch. Um, been the first employee and founder of five uh, investor-funded companies. Um, seven years ago, I founded a company called Heal, seven and a half almost, a company called Heal that did doctor house calls and home-centric primary care that raised $200 million. I did that one with my wife, Dr. Renee Dua. Um, that company is still around and doing very well and continues to grow based on the foundation that Renee and I created over our six and a half years of working there. Um, to change the way primary care is delivered from ha- healthcare will never happen in the home to home-centric care being thought of as the primary and best way to deliver care. I'd like to yeah. you know, think that we were responsible for making that happen, Renee and I in particular. Um, we left Heal a, a little under a year ago uh, to take a little breather and um, to do something new and innovative. And um, earlier, uh, sort of middle of last year, we started this new company, Hey Renee, which is named after my wife, and I started nice. with her, which is a digital care coordination platform for older and underserved patients to easily manage all aspects of their healthcare under one uh, simple integrated uh, tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the background. Got it. That is quite an impressive background, especially uh, props for starting heal. I'm seeing that you have raised over 164 million dollars, so. That is now it's quite our, impressive. Over 200 million. And, and we really, you know, million. we really, really enjoyed building Heal. It was a great experience. We innovated things like um, we were the first solution with real time eligibility verification for insurance, uh, first solution with price print, real for upfront price transparency, the first in network doctor house call provider where you could use your insurance to get a doctor house call seven days a week. Uh, we won uh, the Consumer Electronics Show Innovation and Small Business of the Year nice. Award. So we really, really enjoyed that and served a lot of patients with exceptionally high quality care, which of course is the most important thing. Absolutely. hundred percent. So let's start with something you've just mentioned in your introduction, which is the fact that you have just one job uh, outside of being a actual founder, uh, which is just one internship. Can you tell us a little more why you have decided not to go the path of, you know, working for corporates uh, for a few years and then starting your own company once you have the connections, the finances and more background knowledge in the field? So it's a very good question. And the answer for me, in my case, 
ever since I, I distinctly remember watching TV when I was five years old, and I uh, was watching a TV show called The Dukes of Hazard, which is a show from the 70s that in retrospect was very racist and, and there were Confederate symbols and whatever, but it had a character named Boss Hogg who was a bad guy, but I was mm -hmm. five and I don't think I understood that. <laughs> but he was a boss of this town and I, I just grew up thinking, I want to be a boss. I want to have my own business. My father had his own business. My grandfather had his own business. And so ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to have my own business. And really the only reason to do the internship was actually to put my engineering training into practice because what you learn in school is very, in, in, in the school case of engineering, very useful and very applicable. But right. to see, you know, I learned semiconductor physics and gallium arsenide electronics in my grad school. And I went to Rockwell Science Center and built 1.1 gigahertz receiver chips for commercial GPS. And to this day, I worked in a, in a fab and I, we built a, a really cool semiconductor things. And to this day, that's really important to me, but I always wanted to have my own business. I always wanted to be able to start with a blank sheet of paper and create something from nothing mm -hmm. and hopefully build products and services that help people or make life easier or make right. life better in however big or small a way. Right. So let's let's move on to my next question. Then the bootstrapping question. A lot of founders with a similar background as yours start their companies with the major goal of you know generating revenue without an actual plan of you know selling it eventually. In your case, you have started all of your companies and raised money from VCs. Why did you decide to go with the way of raising venture capital and uh, other equity funding rather than going the bootstrapping way? Well, so there's a couple of different things. The mm -hmm. the first is. I did do a startup very early on that was bootstrapped and it was just very hard to get off the ground. And the second thing is that um, the second thing is that I think that a great test of the quality of your idea and the quality of or my idea and the quality of my preparation to pursue that idea and the quality of the seriousness and financial viability of that idea is its fundability early on, right. right? Now, there are some incredible companies that have built out of bootstrapping and 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 that can absolutely happen and credit to those entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. But for me, meeting that venture threshold meets means that I've met a threshold of a viable financial model, a viable business, a good team early on. Obviously there's some work that goes in pr prior to funding, but I've had that opportunity. And now with a track record, the ability to raise money that, um, that I think I can go faster. The other thing that I think is sometimes a bootstrap business, sometimes you make better decisions because of it. And the people who've done bootstrap companies own a lot more of their companies. And some of them are very, 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 very wealthy and, yeah. and do very well for themselves have changed the world. And there are a lot of great examples of that, but but Mark Cuban always talks about it, though now he's on Shark Tank, but um, in investing in other people's ideas. But the, but the point of that is to say that sometimes it forces you to make bad decisions early, right? right. I got to take this revenue deal. I got even being underfunded will do that, right? Yeah. Uh, very early on in Heal, I agreed to some contracts to deliver our service for an extremely low price that, you know, was I was stuck in for a long period of time and Ultimately, I could have done a lot better than those deals. 
Understood. That is quite an interesting approach. So let's let's touch onto that. So raising as early as idea stage. That's quite a complicated fundraising to pull off, especially for a founder who doesn't have much experience or connections in the field. So when would you recommend for founders to actually start fundraising for their companies? Is it when they start generating first traction? Is it when they start growing their first potential customer interviews? Or when is that moment when you think the founder has enough uh, to bring to the investor and actually ask for their money. Yeah, look, so I think that fundraising has gotten easier. Right now, the market's yeah. frothy, and we'll see how that holds out, right? The Dow is being choppy, the NASDAQ is being choppy these last few months. So we'll see how that plays out. And ultimately, no matter what anyone says, the public markets affect the private markets because if public companies in your space aren't worth as much, then private companies are going to be worth less, and so on and so forth, right? On down it goes. Uh, And ultimately, private companies need liquidity events and IPOs are a big liquidity event. So, um, so that, you know, that we'll see how long the froth lasts. But now, you know, when I raised my first round, I always tell the story, it was 1998. And I looked up in a physical book, in a physically printed manual, okay, the internet was three, four years old at the time. There was a mm-hmm. physically printed manual about the Los Angeles Venture Association that I bought. Uh, and I don't even know how it was recommended to me or saw at a bookstore. I think it was, I was Barnes and Noble. I used to go to, before the internet, I've been an avid reader for forever. And before the internet, yeah, I subscribed to some newspapers, Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. LA Times, New York Times, whatever. But I would go to Barnes and Noble and browse all the business magazines and read them, Right. Because I couldn't afford to buy 50 magazines a week. So I think I bought it there. I saw that there was an event. I read about this venture fund called Draper Fisher Jurvetson, Tim Draper's famous fund. Mm -hmm. And he was speaking at the event. And so I bought a ticket to the event. I went there. I listened to him speak. I walked up to him afterwards. said, can I get your business card? Because I'd like to call your assistant and schedule time to pitch you. Right. That was how I found my first VC. Nice. That is how I got in the door. And that's how it was done back then, right? Today, there's websites devoted to VCs, angel, seed fund, pre-seed, angel, incubator, accelerator, this orator, that orator, have no money, your first 10 grand, your first 50 grand, your first this. There's so many websites that I think you'd be lost in the options, right? The number of tools available from the Y Combinators and the 500 startups and the, these kinds of incubator and accelerator models to angels and, and high net worth individuals and sites like AngelList that help you mm-hmm. publicize to crowdfunding, right? To, you know, um, the, oh, what is a big crowdfund? I'm missing the name now. Um, uh, the crowdfund Kickstarter and, and GoFundMe and all these different things. There are so many different ways to get to investors, to get your idea out there and to to pitch it. So I think that fundraising for an idea is actually easier now than it's ever been. Um, uh, And and um, I think that that is, you know, uh, that is where I would. That, that's what I would say is that it's it's easier now. And it doesn't mean that you can't do, even fundraising for an idea is not never just an idea, right? It's, I had developed an idea, I uh, wrote a deck, I developed mm-hmm. a financial model, I had a few phone calls to test the viability of the idea. 
I talk to some people through LinkedIn and there's also a great way to find people called LinkedIn, right? right? You don't have to spend on recruit. Just go and look for people with backgrounds. You talk to them. Most people, if you message them and say, and I know this because I do this all the time. People message me and say, hey, I'm an aspiring health tech entrepreneur. I want to learn. I have an idea. Can I pick your brain? I give them, you know, not, I can't say yes to everybody, but I right. three, four times a week, I'll take a 30 minute call with an aspiring entrepreneur, nice. give them a little advice, point them in the direction. So because of all those resources, I think that it is not hard to get your head in the game and to get funding early. I would both agree and disagree here. Honestly, I think that fundraising now became so much easier that a lot of founders just start fundraising super early on and eventually the investors get bombarded with this kind of, you know, extra, extra early idea stages, startups. But yeah, you're absolutely correct. That's a good way to start. If that doesn't work out, you realize that investors just need more from you. Go for it. Get more traction. You know, not that's another perk of being in the 21st century. You don't need that much money to start generating traction in most cases. Of course, in your next case, uh, it's bio. Uh, everything related to the medical field is usually extremely expensive. So yeah, in that case, that might make quite a bit of sense. And yeah, you've started your story by saying that you know you have raised your first round in 1998 uh, by reading something in an actual like physical booklet, which is extremely yeah. hard for me to imagine. And, and- <laughs> so- you literally would after a pitch you would fedex your business plan yeah um, which was is, printed on paper um, um uh, so with, with with that uh with that in mind how did this industry obviously transform quite a bit so moving forward to the current days what was your approach to fundraising for hey renee because one of the reasons why i decided to invite you on fundraising radio is because you have raised from great great investors investors such as tau ventures and mocker capital both of those i know personally absolutely amazing investors so how did you get in touch with those people well so so the the, i just want to go back to your previous comment though to say something real quick which is being funded does not mean having a good company mm-hmm. or a great company or a viable company, right? Absolutely One of the not. Tau Ventures told me they look at 2,000 business plans to, or 2,000 pitches to fund 10 companies in a year, yeah. right? Some bigger VCs will look at 20,000 and fund 100 companies, but the point is the That's ratio same. is still, right? A, now there's a lot more investors out there and everyone wants to get into the venture game and everyone yeah. hears about the guy who the first 250 grand in Uber is worth $2 billion. Everyone hears those stories, right? Yeah. But let's say you get that check, that first check, that first quarter million, half million, million, two billion, whatever. How many of those companies then go to the A round, then go to the B round, then have some kind of exit? You'd have to look at 20,000 companies to get to one, right? Two, maybe. So just sometimes getting money is puts a pressure on you in a way you're not ready for and you don't deliver because you, when you talk to investors, you say for this much money, I'm going to do that much. Mm -hmm. Expect some variance, some problem and some hiccups. Any good investor does. Yeah. Um, But, but they do, they do expect that they should, you know, at some point you will deliver, right? At some point. And, yeah. and if you don't deliver, bubkis, they, they're not going to be happy and you won't get any more money, right? So in the case of how I raised additional capital, right? Um, I, I'm sorry, how I raised capital from those investors at mm. this point, the answer to that question is, 
I'm just very, very uh, fortunate in the building of Heal and the building of Fit Orbit before that and the companies I built before that to have gotten to know and thankfully built a favorable reputation with investors as a someone who has, you know, as one of my investors said, I'm a visionary, right? Um, who has big ideas that can change the world and mm-hmm. be the ability. There was a VC that contacted me recently that uses some kind of AI-based platform to look at a company in the seed stage and decide if it has the ability, decide the likelihood that it will get a B round up to the B round stage and get a funded B round based upon its its early performance, based upon who the founders are primarily. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very excited uh, when they said you you scored 97% in our scale, right? And, 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 they take anyone who, who has 85% or higher. And I was really excited to know that, right? Only because it's a it's a reputation I built with Renee and our other co-founder in this company, Alexander Cohen. Um, but, and sometimes people hear that story and it makes them think. So let me just, sorry, to finish the thought, I was extremely happy. I knew Morgan uh, Livermore from Quiet Capital when he was at Excel and I wanted him to work with him, right? I knew Amit Gerg from the the venture community. I hadn't worked with him before, but I wanted to work with him. Mm-hmm. Pika and Mucker Vent, uh, Mucker Capital or LA-based companies who I knew of. And so it was relatively straightforward to get to them to take a look. Right. But two things to say. Those four groups said yes, and two others, Global Founders Capital and SaaS Ventures said yes. But 20 groups said no. Yeah, right. that's right. Even, Even at now, that level. Yeah. we love you, Nick. We want to do the next round. You're a little early. We love you. We have an investment in this space. We, it wasn't like, oh, okay, we don't want to invest in you. But regardless of what the reason is, they said no, right? Right. So the thing for a first-time entrepreneur, because sometimes people, when I was a first-time entrepreneur, I'd be like, oh, you got to use your network and you got to use your background and you go back to the same VCs. I'm like, yeah. what are they talking about? I don't have a network. I don't have a background. I don't know any VCs. What the hell am I going to do? Yeah. But the easiest term sheet I ever got to this day is that very first term sheet in 1998. I went to the meeting in person. I pitched. By the time I got back to my office, they had faxed me. Literally, it was faxed, <laughs> faxed me a term sheet, right? That day, that time, right? So that the point is that the quality of the idea, the quality of the team, the quality of the work you've done to date, and we'll... A first-time entrepreneur is as much to, and repeat entrepreneurs will sometimes make the mistake of assuming just because there are a lot of entrepreneurs who've had great exits and their second company and their third company just are duds, right? Um, In the same way that great directors have one incredible movie and then every other movie is a dud because they had that one story to tell, right? Or they sort of lost the fire, you know? so, you know, those things are also factors. Right. So on this note, actually, I want to jump in and ask you the question about that company or about that fund that invests based on the likelihood of a company reaching Series B just based on the founders. What's the company name? Because I definitely heard of something like that. And I think I introduced someone in that space, but I personally forgot the name. Do you it, have the there, name? Because I'm sure I, a lot I of I think there's more than one VC that might do this, but this one is called 2.12 Ventures. 2.12 it's Ventures. A, it's a 100K check type of company. We were far beyond their stage because we've raised $8 million, mm-hmm. but 
that process and how it was interesting to me, right? And just knowing that based on what they could tell publicly, which is who our founders are, they scored us that high. Understood. Perfect. For people who are curious to see how much they're going to score there, I'll make sure to leave the link in the description. But I don't think episode. you can apply. I think they, I, like, I didn't apply to their process oh. to get this score. They came to me and said, when we talk to you, we'll tell you how we contact you. So I took the call in part to find out what made them decide to contact me. So I don't know mm -hmm. that that's, that's one that you can, you can reach out to. But what I will say is, if you are going to get your company funded with $1 or $100 million, you're going to do it because you are an aggressive go-getter who's not afraid of hearing the word no, right? Um, and, and, and too often, the biggest limitation people have is that they limit themselves. Oh my God, what if they say no? You know what my attitude in life has always been? They're not going to kill you. They're not going to spit on you. They're just yeah. going to say no. So what? Yeah. You know what? I asked seven girls to the prom. All <laughs> seven of them said no when I was in high school. I'm married to a wonderful woman now, and we have a happy family together. Three wonderful kids, and my life has worked out pretty nicely, right? So what? People say no. Who cares? Yeah, that's right. And most likely investors will not spit on you. That is quite rare, especially in the COVID scenario. Um, so yeah, go for it. Uh, Hopefully they won't spit on you otherwise either. But <laughs> yes, in the COVID sense, they especially won't. Spit uh, on absolutely. You. Absolutely. They will not. Um, so on this note, let's touch on to something that you've mentioned earlier in your uh, one of your answers, which is the exits and some kind of, you know, any kind of exits, either IPO or an acquisition or a merger uh, from all those five companies that you have started without Renee, hey, Renee, it's going to be four, of course. Uh, but for those four companies, how many of them have actually reached the exits? Uh, two. Well, two. one is still around. Okay. Yeah. Two had an exit, one didn't make it. Gotcha. So that is quite impressive with one being... Well, one was a modest... One of them was a pretty modest exit. It was it was better than dying, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't much better than dying. Exit better than dying. That's Those but, are still exits, you know? But the thing I will say in that process is when you are a founder, especially I'm an, I'm an immigrant, it's sort of cultural that, that we, you know, think this way as Indian people. I'm an Indian person, but... A lot of people think this way, regardless of their cultural background, right? This is not restricted to Indian people, but we give a lot of uh, a lot of of sort of deference, respect, and credence to investors, right? And mm -hmm. you should, you should, to an extent, but you should challenge them too, right? That company, and I won't say the name, that didn't have the great exit we had an offer to be acquired for triple the valuation of our previous, double the value, sorry, between two and three times the valuation of, of our last round, mm -hmm. four months after the round. It was a cash offer. It would have been a great exit. I personally would have made $15 million. Okay. Nice. And the investor said, no, it's not enough. Okay. And I would, and, and, but what they said is, Nick, if you're going to leave the company, because we don't sell, then we'll sell. And I should have had the guts to say, I will leave the company. Right. Instead of saying, no, I'm going to be loyal, like out of a sense of loyalty, right? That has happened uh, another time. I've had a, a very, very favorable 
incredibly favorable offer, hundreds of millions of dollars, right, from a publicly traded company. But that time I stood firm, right? And and ultimately, whatever came to pass without getting into details, because there's so much confidentiality and stuff involved, turned out to be the right thing, right? Um, uh, but but investors expect you to be the leader of your company. They're not going to yeah. lead your company. But if you don't step up and lead your company, they will. They sure will. Investors love to do that. And leading the company from the passenger seat is kind of uh, very fun for them to do. Uh, so let's 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 briefly and go great. back to that. And part of the difference, part of the thing that you have to do, one of the things that is pounded into the minds, if you read any document about VCs, fundraising, blah, 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 it's always optimized for the valuation. Even on Shark Tank, can you get the best deal? Can you get the best deal? The only valuation that matters is the last one. Okay, which is your exit or IPO price. Your early valuations don't matter nearly as much. The terms and the quality of the investors matter. Are you investing in people? Are people investing in you that will say, I'm investing in Nick. And if he makes bad decisions, I'm not if I do something crazy or criminal, whatever, but if I make bad decisions, I'm going to bet on him. And if he makes good decisions, I'm going to bet on him, right? Versus... I'm betting on this Nick and this idea, but I have my own ideas about how this should go and whatever. And are they going to override your judgment and your opinions, right? Because And that's important because you might think, oh, this term sheet is at a $50 million valuation, but this term sheet's at a $100 million valuation. Well, $100 million is better. But if you get an investor who then lets you sell the company, so um, you make so much money, right, that later or you have such great success later or you enjoy the process more then then it was worth it right so it doesn't matter what your first valuation is, it matters what your last one is and it's really important to keep in mind i'm gonna slightly disagree with you here i think that valuations early on do matter because some founders go for too high of a valuation and eventually struggle to raise for years and some founders go for too low a valuation and end up with uh, four percent of their own company at the exit. Uh, so something to watch so, out for, for sure. But before you jump in, one more question about what you said earlier, which is investors allow you to sell uh, the company, which is very interesting statement. So when you say that whether the investor allows you to sell or not, what do you mean by that? Do the investors in your case have the right to prevent you from doing something? Like no. That? So so. I think the two thoughts are related. Yes, valuation matters. You shouldn't sell too much or too right. little. If you command too high a valuation, or I, I wasn't saying it doesn't matter, but the quality of the investor also matters very, very much. Absolutely. You're, you're right. We're, but we're, we're saying sort of two different sides of the same thing. But the thing, the, the thing about selling is if at some point a company will get big enough that you as a founder, Renee and I were too, you don't have control over your board of directors right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's me, whether it's me and a co-founder, you don't have control over your board, right? And if you don't have enough independent board members, and if the investors control the board, or you've given up a controlling interest in your company, these are things to keep in mind. But also what is there to keep in mind is that you you have to, there, there's, some, there's some betting and some guesswork you're going to have to do. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, it is very unlikely that you will build a huge company while controlling the board and controlling a majority of the company, right? That's right. 
to raise enough cap because investors want to put on good controls because there have been too many examples, some of them criminal like Theranos, right? Yeah. And where there's been so much hype and demand that they let the the founder have whatever they want. Oh, you can have board control and you can have super majority voting and you can have this and you can have that and you can have whatever. And then they end up with, with literally a crime on their hands, right? And what do they do, right? So I think that good governance, just to, I, I don't mind that there are board members. I don't mind that I'm not a majority on the board. I don't mind that I don't own 50% of the company, 50.1% mm -hmm. of the company. What I do want is people who are in it with me and who will back my play or will be convinced by logic and reason. It's, it's not right because I said so, but it's also not right because they said so. Right. That's a way to look at it. And by the way, for people who are curious to listen more about how the board seats work and how the investors can actually control your company or not control your company, definitely check out the episode that we've just released by the time this episode will go live. Uh, so on this note, let's move on to the very, very last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Nick, what do you want the listener to do as soon as this episode is over? What I, what I want listeners to do as soon as this episode is over is yeah. if you're at all interested in the health tech space and you're an engineer or a product person and can help us with growth and business development, uh, visit our site, which will be in the links below and will be is at heyrene.co. It's super easy. H-E-Y-R-E-N-E-E.co, right? Right. Um, if you are an entrepreneur, pursue your dreams. Go chase them. Chase them hard. Chase them smart. And if you connect with me on LinkedIn, and if you give me a passionate reason why, I might take the time to get, help you if I have the time. I, I, I work, I do this full time. I have three young kids at home, yeah. obviously my wife, and, and I want to be there for my kids. So I balance my time. Um, totally. uh, uh, but but uh, I do try to help people. It's my way of giving back. Awesome. Lovely. In that case, I'll make sure to include the link to Nick's LinkedIn in the description of this episode. Of course, there's going to be a link to Hey Renee and probably a few other links, which I'm not sure what they are going to be yet, but that's going to be my call to action. Check out the description of this episode. And as always, have a good day.